we have been answering the question on a little mini-series that got bigger than I anticipated, longer than I anticipated. Why did Jesus die? What might sound like a very elementary question, in a sense, the answer is very easy and direct. He died for us, for our sins, that we might be reconciled to God. But this is the very heart of the gospel. It is breathtaking, it is beautiful, it is stunning, it is powerful, and we as believers in Christ can never tire of hearing that good news and learning more about it. That old rugged cross. So I'd like to present this morning's message in a different framework than we have in the past. And we're going to use the word deconstruction. You might know in the last couple of years that is a term that is very, very popular. It's a process that a lot of people are talking about and engaging in. But don't believe the hype. It's been going on since the beginning of the church and really since the beginning of truth. When people speak of deconstructing their faith, in a general sense, it's a process of evaluating and, and analyzing one's core beliefs and convictions. Now, this is not the subject for this morning, but there's deconstruction that can be very helpful and healthy, and there's deconstruction that is very toxic and not helpful at all. But would you know that Jesus established his ministry with deconstruction? Obviously, not the truth or his truth. But Jesus began by deconstructing the idolatrous religion of the day. You see, the Pharisees had their beginnings in the exile, hundreds of years before Christ came. And the idea was to honor God's word. But over the years, that simple and godly desire became toxic because they wandered far from the heart of God and far from the written word. And so Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, began his ministry by deconstructing what the religious leaders of the day were propagating. Do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount how much time we spent on this construct? You have heard it said of old, but I tell you. That's where the Pharisees and Jesus became best friends. Because Jesus relentlessly deconstructed their false religion and called them on the carpet. And he brought them back to the heart of God. You've heard it say, said, do not murder. Well, those guys would go to bed patting themselves on the back saying, oh, what a 
godly person I am. I have not killed anyone today. But Jesus went on, but I tell you. Do you hate people in your heart? Have you dishonored people in your thoughts or by your words? You see, in your obsession with the technical points of how you make your sacrifices and and how you distort your face when you're fasting for everyone to see, you miss and you neglect the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy. Love your neighbor as yourself and so forth. So Jesus had to put aside what people thought was the truth of God and remind them what was clearly, clearly written and spoken for centuries prior to that. But saints, while it is true that concepts such as love your neighbor, that those are the heart of God, They are not the essence of our faith. They are the outflow of our faith. And this is precisely what we have been speaking to the last month or so. Remember Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. But I've come to fulfill. You see, the religious leaders liked the first part. They wanted to know if this, if this young and new rabbi who never went to seminary was going to use the law, Moses and the prophets, as his straight edge. And he affirmed that would be true. He quickly showed them that they had completely misrepresented the law and the prophets. He showed them the futility of using the Ten Commandments or the law as your measuring stick. If your performance was good enough, you'd be accepted by God and perhaps make it into the eternal kingdom. If you were good enough. Jesus exposed the folly of performance-based religion. The misguided notion that you are going to take the perfection of the law and say, well, if I do well enough, maybe God in the end will weigh my works and allow me in because I've done more good than bad or I've reached some level of of good performance. Jesus, after deconstructing that silliness, would give the best news That any sinner, all of us, could ever hear. I will fulfill it. Remember his active obedience? I will keep the law on your behalf. And I will do it perfectly. No one's ever done that before. But furthermore, my passive obedience. I will submit myself to death, even death on a cross. And I will shed my precious blood on your behalf so that 
we might be reconciled to God. Not because of our good works, not because of our behavior, our performance, any of those things, but because of the good works of another who died in our place. Words that we have examined recently that help us understand what God has saved us from and saved us to through the death of Christ. Remember the word propitiation? I hope you get excited when you're reading your Bible and that word pops out. Because now you know exactly what it means and exactly what it's intended for. To propitiate or propitiation is a Bible term. It's a beautiful theology, gospel term. That means to appease or to satisfy. Jesus, when he died on the cross, when he shed his precious blood, he completely and in every conceivable possible way satisfied God's righteous holiness and justice in regards to our sin. Not one stone was left unturned. There is nothing left for us to do as if we could ever merit anything by our performance. The flip side or the result of that is the word redemption. To redeem means to buy back, scripturally speaking, at a great cost. Propitiation. Redemption. All of these words, together and collectively, they show us the breathtaking nature of the gospel of Christ and the death of Jesus. Last week, in regards to what God has saved us from and to, we looked at the word wrath and inheritance. Wrath is a settled indignation and anger. Specifically, biblically speaking, in regards to our sin. It is not a flash of anger or irrational anger like many of us have experienced from other people or perhaps ourselves. It is a settled indignation with the sinfulness of sin. Inheritance is what we are saved to. It could almost be a synonym for the word salvation. It's what God has gifted us. Heaven itself is not our inheritance. It gets better. Peter says our inheritance is laid up in heaven for us. It is beyond description, beyond our ability to adequately describe what God has not only saved us from, but the beauty and the glory that he has saved us to. And it's all by his grace. Completely a gift. It begs the question which we are confronted with over and over and over and over again in the New Testament. Why would we ever live for lesser things? 
Why would we ever live for things that are less than who we are now in Christ and what he has gifted us with? So this brings us to today's two words. And I'm just telling you, they are really good words. Destroy and deliver. Destroy and deliver. So let's read our scripture passage for this morning, which is Hebrews chapter 2. I invite you to turn or to scroll to Ephesians, uh, to Hebrews chapter 2, towards the end of your New Testament. Yes, we do flash the verses on the screen, but I am most satisfied from up front when I look out and I see heads looking down in your own Bibles. Hebrews chapter 2. Now we're going to read a nice little chunk here, eight verses or so, beginning in verse 10. But we're going to focus about midway through. You'll notice that the author to the Hebrews, he utilizes Old Testament passages. Because all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. So Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. That's the gospel. Bringing many sons to glory. Should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So Christ, the sinless son of God, his path was suffering. And we are told repeatedly to expect the same. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed. Listen. He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of Of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold. Remember the word behold? Look. Amazing. The children God has given me. Now, this is where we're going to hone in on. Notice the terms beginning to pop out. That we've been talking about. Since therefore the children, that is you and I, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Now just stop there for a moment. He makes an obvious statement. We share in flesh and blood. That is, we're human beings. But when you're speaking of Jesus, you have to actually make that point. He himself likewise partook of the same things. That is the incarnation. Emmanuel, God with 
us. This was no ordinary person. We continue. That through death, he, Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong delivery. So right on either side of the word death for Jesus, destroy and deliver. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He became one of us. He lived among us so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now that is a rich Rich passage. And I want to highlight and lift out those two terms on either side of the word death. Destroy and deliver. So let's look at our first word, which is destroy. John Owen, uh, hundreds of years ago, described it in this way. He said, the death of death in the death of Christ. The death of death in the death of Christ. Remember how the angels announced and described the coming of Christ when he was born. His name will be called Jesus. Why? He will save his people from their sins. We have to be very clear in regards to why Jesus came. Many today and in history would say something like this. Jesus came to be the best teacher ever and to show us how to live and to show us how to live a fulfilled life and show us how to love our neighbor. Now, those things are true in context, but they're not the reason why he came. As he came, he showed us How to live our lives. How to live, love our neighbor as ourselves. How to lay our lives down for one another. For sure. But that is not why Jesus came. Jesus came. Watch, look at the 
the detail here. Jesus came to destroy not only death, but the one who had the power of death. Remember, we started this entire little mini-series all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the book of beginnings, the fall, the curse, and death. Romans 5 said that through one man, sin entered into the world, and then death by sin. That was in a garden. Jesus sweat drops of blood in a garden. In anguished prayer. Jesus died in a garden. And was resurrected in a garden. To reclaim that which had been lost. In the garden of Eden. So let's kind of look at what some of this. How this plays out. I don't have slides for this. uh, But I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 1. Or just listen to me read it. I want to show you how all this ties together. Let's take a familiar passage. First John is towards the end of your Bible. First John chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's easy. If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now remember, every word of God, Proverbs 30 tells us, every word of God is tested. I understand if I confess, acknowledge, agree with God that what I did was wrong. I understand that there is forgiveness and restoration of fellowship with him. But there's words that you need to pay attention to. We need to pay attention to. Look at what he says in verse 9. Because if we grasp this, it will give us such confidence in our walk with the Lord. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Now that throws a whole different perspective on what he's saying. Well, what is God faithful to? Why does it say he's faithful and just to forgive us? Because God is holy. For that, I want you to turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. Jeremiah, chapter 31. This is a beautiful passage in which Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, announces The new covenant. Remember in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, they were operating under a covenant that was indeed, in a temporal sense, performance-based. If they would honor and worship God, remember their sacrifices, love their neighbor, and so on and so forth, 
God would bless them in ways they couldn't even handle. But if they ignored, wandered, disobeyed God, there would be curses that would come that likewise it's hard to even describe. We won't read the whole passage, but look at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So there are days coming where there will be a new covenant. Now stop there for just a moment. Remember the Last Supper? When Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples? There are four cups in that meal. The third one is right after the supper, the cup of redemption. When God would redeem his people from the bondage and slavery of the Egyptians in a temporal sense, Jesus injects at that moment and says, this is the new covenant. Not in that lamb's blood that was spread on your doorpost not on the countless numbers of animals that have been sacrificed over the centuries this is the new covenant in my blood new covenant jesus blood the days are coming verse 31 When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And I'd like to skip down to verse 34. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. Because if you're in the kingdom, if you're in this new covenant, you know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now watch this at the end. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God says there is a time coming in the new covenant, the new agreement, which has nothing to do with your performance, that I will completely forgive And remember your sins no more. Based upon the obedience and the righteousness of one. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so when God says in 1 John. And here's where I want all of us to develop our confidence in this. And to not live our lives feeling guilty. As we often do or weighed down. When we agree with God and confess That what we did, what we said, how we acted, what we thought, whatever it is, that was wrong. Guess what? He's not surprised. Like he doesn't know that. When we confess that, our fellowship is restored. That's the beauty and the power of the gospel in the life of the believer. That God is faithful to the promise that he gave hundreds of years before Christ came and reminds us of it as believers now. One more verse, which is Hebrews chapter 9. Again, these are little extras that we're adding in this morning. We've read this passage a few times during this series. 
Hebrews chapter 9. Speaking of Christ and his death. We'll pick it up in verse 13. The basic idea here is that Christ did not come and bring a sacrifice. He didn't come and bring a lamb or some other animal for the altar. He brought himself and he laid down his life. For if, verse 13, the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify or cleanse or set apart for the purification of the flesh outward. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Remember we said the death of Christ was first and foremost primarily to and for God. It was to satisfy, to propitiate his holy righteousness and justice on our behalf. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. is what we call regeneration, being born again. The life of God is now in you. And so not only are we forgiven positionally, legally before God, but God does a work in our hearts. We're alive now. God lives in us and he not only forgives our debt and our sin, but he actually cleanses our conscience so that as we train our conscience on the word of God and the truth of God, we can walk and live in freedom because it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. You've heard me reference this often. Listen to what John has to say. First John chapter three, verse eight. Connecting what I just said, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Boom, there's it. If you ever ask the question, Or want to know why actually did Christ come? He came by his death to destroy the works of the devil. And the destruction was complete and final. And the destruction of our enemy and his works are on your behalf entirely apart from your efforts or your contributions. So any conception of why Jesus came has to be rooted in the fact that he would lay down his life on our behalf and destroy the works of the devil. But here's the beautiful thing. He says very specifically that he would deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So the next word is so precious. To deliver us. Remember redemption. 
God delivered the, the Israelites from the physical, temporal bondage of the Egyptians. But Jesus, in the new covenant, through his blood, delivers us completely, finally, forever from the marketplace of sin. From the penalty and the power of sin. He delivers us from the wrath to come, Paul said. Again, remember that last Passover meal where Jesus completely rewrote the entire script, the entire narrative. He said, we are so thankful for what God had done for our forefathers in Egypt. But I'm telling you, I have something much better for you. And I'm the only one who could do this on your behalf. And it will be through my blood. This is the blood of the new covenant. Look at what he says. To deliver, Hebrews 2 again, to deliver those through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now watch what God is doing here. He is not merely saying that judicially God will save you or Christ will save you from death or the penalty or the power of death. He doesn't just say that. He's talking about the here and the now while you are alive on this side of eternity. The bondage of being fearful of death. Living in fear. Living in fear of what happens when you die. What will happen? Where will I go? Jesus settles that completely. This is a part of your inheritance. Saints, if ever there is a generation that needs to hear this, it is ours. We are not afraid of death. Because we know the one who holds the power of death. We know that he has been defeated. And we know, Revelation 1, Jesus, the one who holds the key now to death and Hades. This is beautiful. It is precious. It is ours. I commend it to you. We are so easily distracted. So easily. Fear can be instilled into our thinking. And just the way that we live. Brothers and sisters. I'm here to tell you. We do not fear death. I am not suggesting. That we live recklessly. I am simply saying. That fear that many of us naturally have of death, it's removed. And as we walk with the Lord, as we walk in the Spirit, as we walk in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, He ministers this truth to us. I want you to turn to one more passage, and that's Colossians chapter 1. 
Again, you'll see it on the screen. But I really want you to see it in your own Bible. Colossians chapter 1. A beautiful, beautiful passage that shows us how the apostle prays for the saints. Verse 9. And so from the day we heard of your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk, right, it's not just up here, to walk it out, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing In the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Now, watch the Bible theology terms, the atonement terms, popping out. You're going to see this more and more as you read your Bible. Giving thanks with joy to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. How has he qualified you to share in the inheritance? By faith in Jesus Christ, not your works, his works. Now, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In that kingdom, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. My prayer for us is that as we read our New Testaments, as we read God's word, we will begin to see how saturated the pages of our Bible actually are are with the blood of Christ. These gospel terms, redemption, deliverance, forgiveness, they are everywhere because they frame the essence of our faith. I leave you with two familiar verses from last week. Let us impress upon our minds these solemn truths. They are beautiful They are powerful, they are stunning, they are breathtaking, but let us not get it wrong. 1 Corinthians 2.8, speaking of the crucifixion, none of the rulers of this age, Paul says, understood this, what was going on. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, please let that just sink in for a moment. The Lord of glory who created all things, sustains all things by the word of his power. Submitted himself to death on our behalf. Death on the cross. Oh, God's word is filled with so many tensions, things that don't add up by themselves. The Lord of glory crucified. Acts 20, verse 28. Paul speaking to the Ephesian believers. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Watch this, which he obtained or purchased 
with his own blood. How does God, who is spirit, have blood? The incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. Christ, the son of God, laid down his life because he loves you. He has in every way satisfied God's righteous standards so you and I can walk in freedom, learn more about him, get more and more excited every single day of what God has in store for us. And we are now free to joyfully lay our lives down for others, to serve And to love other people, even, Jesus said, your enemies. Because we were once enemies of God. But through the death of Christ, God has reconciled us to himself. This is love, Romans 5, 8. That that Christ loved us and laid down his life for sinners. Let's bow and prepare our hearts for prayer. With every eye closed, the disposition of our heart and minds bowed before the Lord. I earnestly commend to you the beauty and the power and the stunning truths Of the death of Christ. May we never take it for granted. May we never. Misappropriate it. Or mispresent it. To be less than what it is. It is the centerpiece. Of scripture. It is true that Christ. Died. For sinners and rose again. The question is apart from your good works and efforts and religious duties and all of those things, have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone to save you? It's Jesus plus nothing. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. We give you praise for who you are and for what you've done on our behalf. Our earnest prayer every week. If there will be but one person here or in the sound of my voice another time. Who has not turned to you. And placed their faith and confidence In the sinless son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that he died and rose again on their behalf, that today would be the day of their salvation. Fill us with confident expectation and joy as we serve you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.